Blog Talk Radio. Hey, here we go, folks. It's uh, Sunday, a beautiful afternoon in October, and my guest today is a guest that I've had on many, many times, and it's always a thrill to have him here. Brian Francis Culkin is a writer, theorist, and filmmaker. He's written extensively about topics ranging from contemporary urban gentrification to the history of boxing the presidency of Donald Trump to an analysis of 21st century global capitalism, heroin addiction in modern American society to the cultural development of Boston. His books include The Meaning of Trump, Postscript on Boxing, There is No Such Thing as Boston, Conversations on Gentrification, on Heroin, Spontaneous Reflections, The Hypermodernity and the End of the World, The Brian Francis Culkin Reader, Boxing and Cinema, Bread, a play, in his forthcoming first novel, Into the Jungle. Brian, how are you today? Oh, did we, don't tell me, we lost him, hang on. Uh, oh, here we go. Brian. Hello. Oh, great. Okay. I was, my heart was in my throat thinking we had another technical, but we had a couple of problems in, in the recent weeks, but we're on. How are you today? I'm doing very well. And yourself? Well, uh, it's a beautiful day in Boston, and you're, you're in the area. Is that right? No, I'm, I'm actually, in the moment, I'm down in Florida waiting for my flight back to South America, which will be on, uh, on Thursday. So I'm, I'm waiting. I'm, I'm just down in Florida right now, but I was up visiting in Boston not too recently, um, as I've been home in America. So it's it was good to come back up and visit. Well, as uh, you and I talked many times, and we've uh, talked about gentrification in the past, we talked about global capitalism and spaceship Earth, and uh, this was way before COVID, before the current crises we're seeing. We had no idea that it would ever, would ever see anything like we're seeing now. And you and I have talked in the past couple of weeks uh, privately, but now we can kind of put these things together. And uh, so I, I guess what I'm going to ask is, what the heck is going on, Brian? How do you see this? In, in terms of COVID or in terms of... No, in what, terms what, of what, uh, political, I think right now we're looking at two weeks away from the election and we're looking at politically uh, the countries in a situation. The only time I can remember it this hot was uh, during Vietnam. Uh, you know, we've seen other incidents when, you know, we've had racial unrest. But now it seems like, well, not only do we have racial unrest, but we've got political unrest. We've got um, the emergence of uh, um, people seem to be favoring uh, certain segments of population, favoring a, a movement towards socialism communism, whatever, and then we have the right reacting. So we've got kind of a, we've got a hot spot going here. And um, if you know, yeah, they're always insightful. Go ahead. No, the, the crises are, or the crisis that's currently engulfing both America and the world. It's, it's not strictly a problem of, of the United States of America. It's, there is no doubt there's a multi, there is a multiplicity to it in, in the sense that, it's equally intense wherever you look, whether it's the, the biological um, crisis of COVID, whether it's the looming 
um, perhaps the most serious of all would be the, the, the mutation of our biosphere, the ecological crisis that planet Earth is facing. And then you have, specifically in America, you have an intense social and, and, a, and a looming political crisis as well. I, I was thinking about this recently. I, I was in college when, um, during, the Boer, dur- during the Bush war election drama, as I can remember watching the news, and I can remember thinking it was unique. Certainly, I'd never experienced anything like that in my boyhood or, or in high school. Um, but never once did I think that the situation would spin out of control. I always thought that it was a unique political moment, and you know, it was clearly a, a very close race. It was based on a, on, on, a, a, on a, a series of ballots down in Miami-Dade County that called for a recount, a, a hand-by-hand recount, and, and ultimately some kind of uh, Supreme Court ruling, but I never thought that it would, never even, never even considered that it would that it would escalate into some kind of um, um, political violence or street violence. I guess I implicitly trusted the um, the jur- the the, uh, the governmental and judicial architecture of American society, and I think I don't think I'm by any means unique in saying this, but that trust for 2020 doesn't really exist anymore. And it wouldn't, like nothing would surprise me for the first week in November. I think all options are on the table, including significant civil unrest, including the possibility of a president refusing to abdicate if he would lose. Um, and there's really no telling because this, the, the situation is so unstable and it's flanked, again, the American political crisis is not the only problem. You have the, the problem of a global pandemic. You have the problem of a looming economic catastrophe. You have the problem of, um, of social unrest and, um, and the, the, basically the, the radical dissatisfaction with American life in the 21st century. And um, then you have geopolitical problems as well. I mean, the, the situation with America and China is incredibly tense right now. There's conflict between Armenia and, and, and Azerbaijan and, and China and India. So you have a whole host of problems. And how this is going to play out, I don't think anybody can tell you. I, I think the, situ- the situation right now is radically open. And um, even though it's being controlled and contained by the kind of overcoding of um, the computational power or the power of Silicon Valley and, of course, its relationship with capitalism – but I, I do still think that there is an opening. There, there, there is something that um, will happen that, that we really can't predict. So that, that will be my basic general take on it. Well, a lot of, uh, lot of variables. Uh, you know, when I studied economics, we talked about ex- exogenous variables and affecting an endogenous variable. And basically all of the things that you mentioned uh, affecting what will be the world climate, not just a, 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 an ecological climate, but as you say, politically, socially, you know, humanity, um, are, are we going to be able to keep it together? I mean, so many things are being affected that with COVID ads, I mean, the emotional and to me, the spiritual crisis of people trying to deal day to day with, as you said, uh, uh, jobs are being erased, professions are being erased. Um, you, you know, the, the, the splintering of, of factions. Um, you're right. I, I think it's, it's hard. For, um, so 
what's your guess? How do you what can we play it out? What what happens if Trump wins? What happens if Biden wins? Or does that even is that even well, I, I think either I, I think either way there's gonna be a radical reorganization of American politics that's 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 gonna be generational. And the other thing too that I think is possible is that the way the American media has behaved over the past four years has been very, un, to put it mildly, unstable. And um, I think there's going to be some kind of an accounting for the, the, the transformation of journalism into kind of like a social media pseudo-celebrity endeavor. And I think we're going to have to confront that. But in terms of politically, you know, this, this looming electoral crisis, this, even when it happened with Bush and Gore, it was fairly contained. The only real time in American history where there was a full-blown electoral crisis was 1876 with the election between um, Rutherford B. Hayes and the governor of New York, Samuel Tilden. And that, and that was a long, you know, a several-month drawn-out process of negotiation and deliberation that ultimately ended with Hayes getting the presidency, even though he had lost the uh, popular vote by over two million and um, but that but that moment, though, actually, because part of the negotiation was effectively to end reconstruction in the South following the Civil War, it solidified what became known as the Democratic Solid South, which literally lasted for about 100 years, really up until the 1960s. So when you have an electoral crisis like we're one of the things about this election is that. No matter what happens, no matter what wins, unless there's just an absolute blowout on Election Day, which I don't see that really happening. I guess it's hypothetically possible. But we're not going to know who wins for at least a few weeks because the way that they count absentee ballots and and, and mail-in votes, it just takes some time. So there's going to be a three-week window where no one's really going to fully know who wins the presidency unless, like I said, there's a significant blowout on the – election night and it's just clear that 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 joe biden has beat beat trump so i guess if we look back to 1876 what we can hypothetically envision is that there's going to be some kind of reorganization of the american political landscape or a further doubling down because that's really what happened in 1876 wasn't so much a reorganization as it was like a like lines drawn in the sand and I think what and, and I think that's more realistic and potentially gauging what's going to happen here. And um, and um, and and you know, just when you think things can't get any more polarized, hypothetically, it's possible to become even more polarized. And I think that this election, there are so many factors in play that are pushing us towards some kind of political crisis. That again, it's what what will happen in those three or four weeks during the counting process because there are so many millions and millions of ballots that are being sent in that, um, that there it's, it's more than likely that there'll be significant um, instability and a, a sense of kind of socialized chaos that all Americans feel because nothing like this has really ever happened before. Cause you know, when you look back at 1876 or you look back at the year 2000, what was, what was missing from both those scenarios was this kind of radical overdetermination of technology that's present today. I mean, we didn't have smartphones in 2000. We had cable television. And looking back on it, 
uh, in contrast to the technological horizon of our present moment, that almost seems naive. Like who couldn't deal with cable television? You know what I mean? Whereas now you have this constant pulsation of digital information being beamed to your smartphone at all hours of the day. And this in and of itself, regardless of, you know, this paradoxically, this constant digital pulsation is what actually causes the political crisis to be experienced at such a um, intense level. You know, people, one of the things that people don't fully understand today is that the, the seeming intensity of our world, everything's so crazy, the sky is falling, da 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 I mean, this is something that you hear almost every day. But part of the reason why the sky is falling is because of the technological frame that we're made to exist in. I mean, anybody would feel like the sky was falling if you're getting you know, blasted all, all day long with text messages and social media messages and, and, um, and emails and all of the other um, microelectric technologies and, and, and content that we're constantly interfacing with. So that has to be taken into account too. We can't just say, oh, there's a political crisis. The political crisis is radically exasperated by the technological medium that expresses its own content. Yeah, you know, that is, that is so point on that people are not in a position of they, they've, they've relegated themselves to a point where they, they, every time there's a beep or a flip on the phone, they're on it. And so they don't take time to analyze. They, it's only reaction. And it, it is. It's this chicken little, you know, the sky is falling. And the media yeah. only loves to propagate it. And, uh, and play on it because it means an increase in ratings. It means increase in revenue in terms sure. of commercials. Sure. So, yeah. It, yeah. It's, the media it, can't it, really it, report on its own structure. You know what I mean? It, it can only just keep filling its structural apparatus with new content, new content, new content. And because of the fact that all media, including journalism, has, been, has become so linked to the logic of capitalism. That is to say, everything can be monetized. All clicks can be um, analyzed for potential data. Just basically putting the entire enterprise of journalism into the logic of um, capitalist um, profitability and the logic of neoliberal data aggregation, that in and of itself, not, not only does that, not only does that um, draw, not only does that produce all kinds of ethical questions of the nature of journalism and what's really happening here, but it also, as I was alluding to before, it, draw, it, it produces all kinds of questions regarding the structure itself, how we are interfacing with journalism, how we are consuming our media, how this um, constant pulsation of uh, technological power towards or against the human nervous system, the human brain, how that affects our ability to concentrate and digest information. And as you say, re reflect upon things versus just reacting. Um, the way it's structured now, it's, it's nothing but reaction. You know what I mean? It's nothing but, uh, you know, tweet rages and, um, or as the Korean writer Byung Chul Han calls it, shit storms. Um, <laughs> so our media landscape is, is kind of, um, crisscross with these kind of eruptions of rage and these eruptions of um, nonsensical reactions and these eruptions of emojis because people are unable to articulate in, in language, in, in feeling exactly how they're experiencing the world. And that, of course, 
adds to the crisis, right? So the crisis that we're in is self-perpetuating and reflexive. It, it causes itself as it creates the conditions for itself to be um, reproduced. So, so, and this is my basic problem with the democratic critique of Trump or the, or the liberal or the neoliberal critique of Trump. The basic critique of Trump is that we just have to get rid of this guy so we can put the nightmare behind us. And my feeling is, well, wait a second, you know, you're going to get rid of this guy and you're going to see the nightmare in, a, in just a new guise. I mean, to get rid of Trump is not going to get rid of the nightmare that these past four years have been associated with the deteriorating texture or condition of um, American life, of, of day-to-day life in America. Because when Trump leaves, you're still going to have the ever metastasizing power of computational technology. Um, you're still going to have this kind of constant onslaught of microelectronic pulsation and digital pul- pulsation onto the collective nervous system of the country. You're still going to have this ultra competitive rhythm of neoliberalism. You're still going to have these ideological clashes between the right and the left. Um, and you're still going to have this, this radical, radical and rapidly growing economic inequality that has been growing at an exponential rate since the 1990s and the introduction of the internet into um, the capitalist um, world, I guess you could say. So all, and, and then you, of course, have the meta problem of globalization. So all of these things are, are not going to go away with Trump, not at all, but they're going to be there. And I think by, you know, Again, I wrote a book critiquing Trump. I'm, I'm by no means a Trump supporter, but this kind of classic uh, scapegoating of Trump, and when I say scapegoating, what I mean by that is by taking all of the multitudes of a, of a community's problem and assigning it to a singular cause. I mean, that's not going to work. I mean, we learned that in, in, in the Bible, that doesn't work. And we're going to learn it again if Joe Biden wins, that, 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 that scapegoating of Trump, that kind of projecting all of not only our society's problems, but in a way, I mean, so many people have such hatred for Trump. You can't help but think they're projecting their own internal dysfunction onto the man that like I'm I mean, I read a few articles after Trump became president that people were, you know, um, having all these kind of psychological problems or at least assigning their psychological problems because of Donald Trump. Like I read an article in The New York Times that, you know, therapist offices were busy because Trump has been elected. I mean, this to me strikes me as so, I mean, such a dysfunctional um, response um, that, you know, you're unable to distinguish your own inner life and, the, and your own boundaries with the president of the United States of America. I mean, that, that strikes me as that in and of itself strikes, strikes me as profoundly unhealthy. Um, and again, not, I mean, I'm well aware that a reality television star should not be the leader of the free world. So this is not like a covert defense of Trump or anything like that. But it's just simply stating that the liberal critique of Trump is completely symptomatic. It's, it's focusing entirely on an individual and his dysfunctional psychological and moral life rather than engaging in an actual structural analysis of what we're really dealing with in um, 2020, in the 21st century. And I think we're going to be in for a rude – I mean, people are going to be in for a very rude awakening if they think that the problems of America and the problems of the world are going to go away with Trump. Yes, there might be some euphoria for a couple of weeks after he loses, but those problems are going to come back, and in a way, they're going to come back even worse. 
Um, um, <laughs> I wish uh, you could see my face. I started smiling about uh, two minutes ago. I was hoping we'd get to this point. Um, that you know, especially the blame game. I recently saw a replay of Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell uh, talking about the hero's journey. And one of the things they struck on was the blame game. And Joseph Campbell said, oh, yes, he says, but Joseph, the blame game. And again, it's biblical. He talked about Adam and Eve. And he said, of course, she says, Eve offers the apple to Adam. And God says, why did you take that? Well, he says, it wasn't my fault. You know, it was Eve's fault. And he, he says, well, Eve, what did you do? Well, it wasn't my fault. It was the snake's fault. And that's, I, I see it exactly as you see it right now. Um, uh, uh, because we, you know, we, we, we chose the topic America on the Brink. I did a, you know, a little a survey through the internet and uh, right away uh, an article by Robert Reich, um, Harvard economist. Uh, I think he was in the uh, a Clinton advisor Clinton. or Bush. He was, he was the secretary of labor for Clinton. For Clinton. Okay. So, uh, you know, again, liberalist um, ideology in terms, I mean, he, he probably was instrumental in, uh, you know, uh, consulting uh, Clinton on all his economics. But anyway, he, um, he blames exactly what you just said. He, I thought I was going to see an intelligent article. He blamed the entire thing on Trump's ego, that it is the ego of Trump that is inflaming everything and turning the whole country into, you know, a, a conflagration right now. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I recently had, you know, my apartment in Southie, and I recently had a Nigerian homemaker show. She's a genius. This woman is wise beyond what anything I've encountered in a long time. And she, she said, she was talking about Trump one day and she said, you know, everybody's mad at Trump. And Trump is not stupid. He knows how to incite people. And I tell all these people, ignore him. If you don't feed him, he'll go away. So to me, this is exactly what you're talking about. It's got to be some personal responsibility here to say, what are we reacting to and do we have to react? Yeah, well, there's, there's two different levels, of course. There's the personal level of getting emotionally invested in Trump anger Trump um, of, of, of not liking him on a personal level. And then, of course, but there, there's the reality of the fact that he is the president of the United States and the way he acts and the way he behaves um, is problematic for, you know, one of the things that, you know, just living outside of the country and living in Peru, one of the things that I, I have personally noticed over the past few years is that, you know, it's, it's like America is almost like a laughing stock. You know what I mean? If you say Donald Trump to just anybody who's this guy in the street in Peru, they kind of just shake his, shake their head and say, loco, loco, meaning like they know this guy's crazy. So there is definitely, um, again, and this gets to my point, there's a, there's a very, um, it's very different between engaging in legitimate critiques of Donald Trump and his, um, and not, yes, his policies and things he's doing, but also how this guy became – like, to me, it's not so much we shouldn't – what – the real critique that needs to happen is how did this guy become president? That's the critique that needs to happen. The secondary critique is, okay, let's look at what he's done over the past four years, his policies, his various – the various things he's done, the various things he's done. And then, and then the last thing is, like, you know, his annoying tweets and, and why he's so narcissistic and – 
and so on and so forth. So I guess it's a critique of his psychological, moral texture. But the real thing that has to be critiqued is how did a Manhattan property developer, a reality television star, become the president of the United States? And that is what we have to look at. That is where all the gold is in terms of understanding our predicament. It's much less revealing to simply look at the narcissistic behavior of Trump and his unhinged tweets to understand, um, you know, where we are, where we are. Because, in fact, the reason why Trump can behave the way he does is because there is a technological platform that has been in place, also known as Twitter, also known as social media, also known as on a higher meta level, the integration of computational power and global capitalism, how all these things have given a, a platform to a man that has, you know, I think that Trump has like 80 million Twitter followers. I mean, you know, so these things are all related and they have to be fleshed out and they have to be uh, critiqued and analyzed and then presented to people in a way that they can, that it can be, you know, it, it doesn't have, it, it can't just be, you know, academic jargon. It has to be presented to the population so anybody can understand how it is, you know, and this is what has to be critiqued much less so what um, what Reich was doing in, in, in terms of, um, again, scapegoating the entire problems of America onto Trump's narcissism. Yeah, I, <laughs> again, I'm smiling. Uh, this, that was the same question I posed to all my friends when they reacted so strongly to his, not only his election, but the, his rise to... Um, you know, his presence in the, in the country. And I kept saying, you know, we have to, as Americans, exactly what you said. How did we, did this reality TV personality, you know, this guy with real estate, how did America decide that he could be a leader of the country? And but, that's, but that's the question that, no, that it particularly liberals don't really want to answer. And it's not no. just the fact that, that, that he immediately came after Obama and Biden. I mean, you can't blame Trump on the Obama-Biden term. I mean, that's not necessarily fair. But the, the election of Donald Trump and the fact that, a rea- again, a reality – I mean, this man's a reality television star, right? The fact that he became president of the United States, it speaks to just a, a cultural – Degeneration. Exactly. It's, it's, it speaks to a technological overdetermination where technology and the media becomes the it, it almost d- displaces social reality for, quote unquote, our experience of, quote unquote, reality. Um, it speaks to the the uh, the ever present um, uh, power of capitalism determining all of our choices. Right. It's like everything can be monetized. Everything can be. Uh, experience as data or, or generated as data. Everything can be ta- uh, tagged and quantified and traced. And, and when you add all these thing, things up together, which by the way, has, which has been a trajectory in American society that has been supported by both the left and the right. I mean, when, when, when these changes starting, started to be introduced into America, which is, which you could pin, you can't really pinpoint it, but you could say it started to become visible in the 1980s with Ronald Reagan. This logic has been, it, it never has stopped. It's just accelerated. It, it became more, more um, 
uh, president in the presidency of George H.W. Bush, it became far more paradoxically in the pr- in the presidency of a liberal Democrat who claimed to have kind of a, 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 a socially conscious program like Bill Clinton. I mean, the Clinton administration, and this is outlined very, very clearly in um, one of Adam Curtis's films. It's called All Watched Over by the Machines of Loving Grace. Uh, who's Curtis is one of the great documentarians of the 21st century. And, you know, he talks a lot about how when Clinton became president, one of the things he did was he unleashed market forces even more than Reagan had. And because exactly. of the fact that the in, and, and because of the fact that the internet had been introduced at this time, which gave all these investment banks in Manhattan and these new tech companies in Silicon Valley so much more capacity and so much more velocity, speed, where the trades could happen quicker and products could be developed um, more rapidly and, and, and brought to market quicker. I mean, these things had a, a, a unbelievable effect in speeding up again this kind of this ongoing synchronization of, 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 of global capitalism and global technology. And then again, it happened with Bush. And then again, it happened even more with Obama. And now with, and then when you do all this stuff for 20 years, when you consistently dumb down the population and you're, you know, feeding them unhealthy food and you're stressing them out and they're, they're, they're no longer talking to their neighbors, but texting with, you know, like they're on social media. I mean, you're going to get a president like Donald Trump. I mean, that's just the reality of it. You know what I mean? Exactly. And, and again, by, by, by assigning the uh, election of Trump simply to racism. I mean, yeah, of course, some of Trump supporters are racist. There's no doubt about it. But, but to assign that, the, the election of a reality television star to racism, I mean, this strikes me as being not only um, dishonest, but this kind of unbelievable lack of, analytical power in really addressing the political situation that we find ourselves in. Exactly. When, when this all came to be four years ago and I mentioned this to people, I said, wait, wait, wait. I said, we have to take a look at America. We have to take a look at ourselves. And you're right. The left's just blatantly comes out and said, I didn't do it. He, I didn't vote for him. And, and I go, no, of course you didn't. That's not what I'm talking about. How did we as a society, I, I think you may recall, I think there was on the New Yorker, there was a the front cover showed, I think, a caricature of uh, Jefferson and uh, Roosevelt and uh, even Kennedy, uh, Washington, et cetera, just looking at the uh, political uh, uh, campaigns at the time in the election and just horrified. And that's the first sure. thing. Although, you know, here I am, in a, in a, I'm a, a high school student in the 60s, and Kennedy's making his, his move, you know, and, and how, um, how, how disparate everything was. It was Nixon and Kennedy, and it was such a close election, like we're talking about. But, and, and whether you hated Nixon or, uh, or hated Kennedy or whatever, they were statesmen. You know, and sure. Nixon, sure, 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 but sure, sure. They, yeah, both, they both, both very eloquent. Group. Both, yeah, both very eloquent. But what, you know, the, these are, you know, Nixon and Kennedy were, were, were Gutenbergian people. And what I mean yeah. by that is they were literate. They, they were literate. They grew up in yes. the age of newspapers. They, every morning they woke up and they read the newspaper. And we, of course, wake up and we roll over and we check our cell phones and get bombarded by you know waves of uh, of 
of electromagnetism as we read our Facebook feed. And, and, we, all, and we just scroll. We don't even read. We just scroll, you know. So we're not even digesting the information. We have no capacity to reflect on it. And, you know, I mean, who sits down every morning and has a cup of coffee and reads a nice long article in the New York Times or the Boston Globe? I mean, not many people do that. But Kennedy and Nixon did that. And, and, and because of that, irregardless of whether you agree with their politics or not, they come across as being educated, as being uh, very well-spoken, as being highly literate, and as being articulate. And I think you certainly see that as you go forward. I mean, you see that with, you know, even someone like Lyndon Baines Johnson, who had a very strong Texas accent, you still see the intelligence with him. With someone, even someone like Gerald Ford, who was always kind of thought of as a dummy, you see the intelligence. Jimmy Carter. And then, you know, things take a little bit of a turn when you get to uh, Reagan, because Reagan, in a way, kind of predicts Trump, because Reagan, yes, he, he's certainly literate to a point, but he's more has his televisual presence. He's a television presence where right. his, his charm and charisma and his image, really, not so much what he says, but the image that what his image signifies and symbolizes, that has a lot of power. And then you come to George H.W. Bush, and it's almost like a throwback in a way back to someone like Nixon or Kennedy in the sense that, you know, he's this kind of New England pedigreed politician. He went to Andover, Milton Academy in Andover and Yale, and then he was a fighter pilot. He, he has this kind of classic American pedigree. But, and then as we get further and further along, and you finally come to Donald Trump, you, you are officially now in the, a, a post-literate president presidency you are post Gutenbergian. you are no longer in the analog printing press area era you are in the digital smartphone era and this of course causes a degener- a degeneration of language a collapse of a- of attention or the capacity to pay to actually pay attention and then and then to top it off you get this kind of distortion i mean you look at biden and trump right now i mean biden and, and, and again, they're, they're very different, right? Because, you know, Biden is in a way a throwback, in a way, but not really, too. And, and he, he, he's, he's a tough one to figure out. But right now, Joe Biden can barely put, put together five coherent sentences in a row. And that's just being honest. You know what I mean? He, he can barely keep it together. And that may have something to do with the fact that he's 76 and there might be some cognitive decline setting in. But the fact is, Joe Biden is not this kind of articulate statesman. He can barely hold together a press conference. And then with Trump, who can, quote unquote, hold it together, but it's laced with obscenities and vulgarities and uh, this kind of illiterate bantering that, that he engages in. So we, we are seeing, without question, in this election, beyond the other things I've already enumerated, we are seeing this kind of uh, collapse of language. We're seeing this co- collapse of attention. We're seeing this breakdown of the ability of a politician to enunciate coherent and clear ideas that can be transmitted um, in, a, in a linguistic sense to the population. Now it's being transmitted through memes and images and videos and text and emojis and, 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 and all of these other post-Gutenbergian um, linguistic functions. So this is, this is a big deal. I mean, this is something that we don't talk about at all. And then, you know, when you look at these emergent technologies that are on the horizon, someone like Elon Musk and his new um, company Neuralink, when he's, he's literally trying to link 
the human brain or the cerebral topology um, of, of America with cloud computing. You know what I mean, like by, by inserting microbes that are connected to the cloud and this is kind of information interchange between the human nervous system and, and, um, and, and, and uh, his, his, compu- his, his computing network. And that is like this radical, radical step forward in um, human life as such. You know, so, and I think this election is previewing, in a way, this kind of decomposition of human attention and the human brain when consistently exposed to this kind of microelectronic and computational power. It's very, it's very dangerous, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, what we talk about the Kennedys and, and all the way up to Nixon and, and even, uh, in, you know, the first Bush. They, they got elected based on platforms. They all had agendas. And sure, sure, like, sure, sure. They all had a sense of vision, you know, of the future, where we were going to take America. And <laughs> the last election, I think it was appalling that people were talking about the size of their genitals on national yes. TV. And yes, who slept yes, yes. with whom? And, and everybody, yes. nobody even questioned yes. it. They all... They, 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 you, people couldn't get enough of it. Um, so this is, and, and, and so for us as Americans to just want to, and again, I was totally horrified by Reich that he, he, he took this great topic that we're, this, <laughs> this conversation far exceeds anything that he uh, proposed by his title and so, solely based it on an ego of one guy that this, we can blame all of this on. So I actually have, have had lunch with Robert Reich before he was on the, when I was spending time at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, Reich is on the board there and he, he was there for about a week. And, you know, he, I, I went to a couple of his talks that he gave and, you know, he's a nice enough guy. He's actually quite, quite nice. I sat and ate lunch with him on two different occasions and we talked and he was interested and asked me questions about myself. And, and, uh, but in terms of, um, you know, right, to be fair, he has been very critical of the Clintons, and he has been fairly critical of the whole neoliberal agenda. But he does sometimes get caught up in these, um, in these waves of, and where he's unable just to step back from it and just kind of speak truth to power. So I think that maybe he's just a little bit weak and, and he's unable to resist the power of this, what I call the mimetic mob. And he gets into this kind of um, scapegoating of Trump. And, and, and again, it's not to say he shouldn't be critiquing Trump's, you know, these ridiculous uh, economic policies that, that Trump has um, that Trump has introduced to benefit. The, I mean, you look at Trump's presidency, the the aggregation of wealth is astounding. I mean, you know, you know, Jeff Bezos has made like a, whatever it is, one hundred billion dollars in the past. I mean, this, this kind of economic equality that Trump doesn't say anything about. Um, even as he claims to be the friend of the miner and the, and the welder and the factory worker, this is very, very um, hypocritical on Trump's part and problematic. And, and in this sense, I do like what Robert Rice says. I, 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 I admire him for that. But then at other times he gets into this you know, blame game that's kind of whatever. It's, this is what people do today. It's just not something that I particularly uh, engage in, in, in my own thinking and, and how I operate. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I, I do think that um, that part, I, I, something that we have to think about that's um, 
that's both beyond and internal to the 2020 political horizon is this really this um, this degeneration of language and this kind of degeneration of memory, this this kind of forgetfulness that you see with both of these guys, you know, and, and, and you see it with Biden in a kind of a literal neurological sense. And you see it with Trump in a more psychic deflective sense that, you know, he doesn't remember anything that happened yesterday, Trump, you know, he's, he's, he's on to the next tweet. And um, one of the things that I think people don't realize is that what, what computational time does, and we, we call it in, layman, in layman's terms, real time, what it, it does two things. The first thing it does is it, is it kind of erases the future. You can't imagine the future anymore when you're, when you're subjected to this, to like the constant hum of real time. And the second thing is, is that you become disconnected from the past or, or at least a stable past. The past becomes completely distorted and you can rewrite it and you can copy and paste it and you can kind of um, write over it. So you, you get kind of immersed in this kind of pulsation of computational present. So there's this like real temporal distortion that's also part and part of the linguistic distortion and um, the meaning of visceration that we're seeing in the 21st century. That's something very important that we don't think about too often and, and uh, speak about because we're so accustomed to being subsumed in its, in its, in its rhythmic motion. Absolutely. And, and again, getting back to if there was a set of standards, if there's a set of morality, if there was a, a sense of etiquette and propriety within the population, we wouldn't, neither one of these candidates would have, would have even risen. But, you know, that's the sounding board is what are the people willing to accept? And right now they'll accept anything sensational. Well, I think right now, the polarization is so intense and so over the top that, I mean, I think that Biden people, you know, this, what's happening right now with the recent disclosure of Hunter Biden's uh, laptop and all these contacts that him and his father had with Ukrainian officials and Chinese officials. I don't think that people even care about that. I think they're so um, um, fixated on removing Trump from office, even if it came to light that Joe Biden you know, received, let's just say, a $5 million bribe from China. Even if it was proven, even if the, the bank deposits were verified, I, I don't think that people would change their mind because they would just say, well, look at how corrupt he is. I'm going to vote for him. And I think it's the same way with Trump people. I, I think they're so committed to the Trump agenda and the rupture that he achieved um, in American political life. And also, I think people really, really – like one of the things that I – just from my kind of armchair analysis, what Trump people really like is, is his relationship with the media. That, that is to say the fact that he doesn't play their game, the fact that he openly critiques them, the fact that he openly calls out. And, and again, I, I think Trump is sometimes correct in calling out the media hypocrisy. I mean, it's the, the, media is unbe- the, the media is unbelievably hypocritical. And, you know, just the fact that Steve Scully, the, 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 uh, the journalist at C-SPAN who was supposed to ho- um, host the second presidential debate. I mean, the fact that he did that, I mean, the fact that he was just, uh, just suspended from his job indefinitely for um, making up a lie that he had been hacked on Twitter when he was, when he was communicating with um, Anthony Scaramucci. I mean, this, this is, this is bad. This is, this, this is not a good look. And it gives Trump and his supporters the fire they need 
or the few they need to say, look, this, this is rigged. This is unfair. The media is fake. I mean, so they, I mean, they're locked into a, 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 um, a, a process of, um, I call it a mimetic process, a, a process of, of, of rivalship that is escalating and escalating and escalating. And I think one of the ways the Democratic, uh, the, the Democratic establishment and the media want to escape from this rivalry is simply by taking Trump out by any means necessary. And if that means lying, if that means not covering uh, an otherwise important national security story regarding Hunter Biden's laptop, then we're going to do it. We just have to get this guy out of there. So that and again, all of these things, all of these things are leading to a potential constitutional crisis in November. All of these things. Everything we just mentioned, I mean, and you don't know how it's going to coalesce and form itself into the crisis. You don't know what what spark could potentially, you know, who would have thought that that, I mean, you know, you think about this summer and that police officer, I believe his name is Derek Chauvin. He gets some random call in Minneapolis. It's, you know, it's a summer night in Minneapolis. He gets a random call. There's an African-American man who just passed a fake $20 bill. Can you go check it out? The, like he never thought, I mean, there's no way he could have even been remotely conscious of the fact that he was about to set off a planetary wide chain reaction. There's no way, but all of the pieces were there for it to happen. It just needed a match. And that happened to be the match. And I think the same thing is here with true. It's kind of a similar principle regarding the political crisis, the potential even constitutional crisis that we're heading into. And remember, we don't know what's going to be the match. We don't know. But if the match is struck right, then you're going to see an inferno. You will see an inferno. There's no doubt about it. The, the, the disease, you know, the, the disease has been going on for decades in America. You know, the moral disease, the, the social disease, the, and, and it's, you know, I mean, you know, without going into one of my rants, uh, you know, but I, the things that are from the top of my mind every single day are things like school shootings and the opioid crisis and teenage suicide and the isolate, all the things that we've talked about in the past. This is a festering situation that the body is diseased and we, once in a while, you know, a pimple pops up and it's the, the symptom and everybody wants to jump on the symptom. And, and in this case, the pimple, you know, is Trump or something else. And we have to say, which politician is addressing these critical uh, issues that, uh, that affect our entire society? Nobody. You know, it's just this battle back and forth between who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, who's right should be at all. I, I can't believe the sense of righteousness in everybody that's destroying any sense of reason. Yes, there's, I think that the lack of, the lack of humility um, is directly proportionate to the lack of reason. I think the more humility that we have, the more reasonable we can be, and the more willing we can be to engage with people that might not agree with us, and the more willing we can be to maybe think that our interpretation or viewpoint might not be the right one. And then from there, you get potential um, breakthroughs and solutions. But that's you know, kind of human nature. That's true whether you're dealing with politics or you're dealing with the family drama. Um, but yeah, no, the, the self-righteousness. And, but, you know, again, when, when you're locked into that kind of process, that kind of social process of rivalship, of rivalry, part of the deal is self-righteousness because you have to constantly assu- uh, assert that you're right, you know? That, that's why um, 
you know, what's so interesting and what's so disingenuous about both about this election, whether you're coming from the Democratic or Republican side, is how neither side can admit one good thing about the other person. Neither side. Exactly. You know, exactly. like when you're like, and, and that to me is always a, a major red flag of dishonesty where you can't admit one good thing about your enemy or one good talent about your enemy. I mean, this is a, um, that, that is just, you know, unbelievable. And it shows such bad faith on both actors or both parties. Um, that they're they're unable to even uh, acknowledge something good about a person or a party or a collective that they're engaging in some kind of rivalship with. Well, you know, you and I had conversations in the past about the ability of Trump to be to manifest, and exactly, I mean, whether you hate him, despise him, whatever, if you can't stand back and say, "Hey, wait a minute." How did this guy who didn't have a, um, a, a network of in the in the political in Washington in the, the political uh, system? How did he figure it out? How did he take you know assess the answers? That takes that takes some brains. That takes oh some, definitely oh definitely. I mean Trump Trump people. I mean and, but this is the thing though about Trump is that he what we were talking about earlier his intelligence doesn't register. In you know the quote unquote Gutenbergian universe, like he's not a literate, like his intelligence doesn't speak to someone who's being who's someone who's well read and well. It's not at all. Trump's intelligence, really, what it is, it's kind of like this digital street smartness. You know what I mean? Like he's like a he's like a digital street guy where he intuitively understands how Twitter works. He's never read any media theory. He doesn't understand the nuances of of you know. Um, post-industrial media landscapes, not at all. This is a street guy. Trump's a street guy. Um, and I don't mean that, you know, he was hanging out in public housing in, in the Queens, but he, he made his bones in, in New York City real estate. And whether you're doing um, stuff in Queens or in Manhattan, you're going to be tough to do that. You're going to be very tough. You have to have your wits about you because that, that's a very, very competitive uh, space to uh, be doing real estate deals. So he's a street guy, and I call him a, a digital street guy. And what I mean by that is he has this intuitive understanding of how the new media landscape works. Without any formal academic, you know, intellectual or academic training, he knows how it works, and he does it. I mean, this guy was on Twitter like the day it opened. He, he had a Twitter account. He knew what he was doing. In terms of reality television, I mean, The Apprentice is like one of these landmark shows like Survivor or the Bachelor that really that really captured um, the the uh, the American imagination in terms of this new concept of reality television. So he knows how this new universe of media technologies operates. He knows how to reach people, and that you know again it's not traditional intelligence in the way that we think of it, right? But there's something. I mean. I do not dismiss Trump's, for lack of a better word, intelligence at all. I mean, how, can he be, how could he become president? How could he have done what he has done? I mean, this guy um, – and, and again, you know, just to um, you know, do – I mean, something like all these bankruptcies and, and you know, casinos and stuff like that. I mean, yes, it was immoral. Yes, it was wrong. But he's no dummy for doing that stuff. You know what I mean? Like he's no dummy. He knew what he was doing. Exactly. You know, I read I read the Clown President, which was written by, <coughs> excuse me, one of the uh, political pundits of Rolling Stone magazine, and uh, you know he studied 
um, many elections, and he said, and he, he said exactly what you said. He just knew that by by any kind of impression on the digital scene, that he would get whether it was good or bad, it didn't matter. As long as his name was getting imprinted into the sure. into cyberspace, as long as that was happening, his popularity, yeah. everybody turned their attention to him, and um, you know. Again, he and, and when he postured that way back. I mean, he was on. He was a household. And, and one of the one of the features of the digital landscape that he really, really grasps so well, and I think this is the reason why he's able to constantly bounce back from these things that most human beings could. I mean, this is like the level of harassment that this guy gets on a, on a daily basis. Most people wouldn't even be able to. They'd be hiding in a corner. I mean, like this guy's up and, and I, I think one of the things that Trump really, really grasps about the media that most people don't is that the news cycle and the velocity of digital logic can't stop to focus on something. It has to keep, it has to move. It has to reproduce. It has to continue its circulation. What I mean by that is that Trump understands that no matter how bad or damning the story is about him on Wednesday, it's going to be gone on Friday. Exactly. And not only, is it going to be, not only is it going to be gone, but the population, because there's like this creeping Alzheimer's disease that we all have, right? It's like structural to the interface of the human brain and digital technologies, this kind of subtle socialized Alzheimer's disease that he knows that people are going to forget. I mean, you know, that Bob Woodward book came out a few weeks ago and, you know, whatever, on a Monday, let's say, I mean, it was, it was the biggest story of the year. It was, Oh my God, this, this book's going to ruin him. This book, it's over. I mean, that book was, that, that book was gone on Friday. It was, gone. it was totally and completely forgotten like it was like 1987, you know what I mean? And this is what I was speaking about earlier, that the way digital technology works is that it, or, or I should say real time, that the temporal structure of digital technology, which we refer to as real time, it puts us into this rhythmic ever presence, this kind of rhythmic digital, this rhythmic digital presence that is eternal in a way. It's, it's atemporal, but it's also eternal. And it cuts us off from any semblance of an imaginable future, and it distorts the past. It, 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 you, because you have all these liberties to take with the past. You can cut and paste. You can erase. You can, you, 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 you can mem it. You can, you can distort um, the, the prior temporal flow. So Trump gets this. Now, he couldn't say that the way I just said it. He probably wouldn't even know what the hell I'm talking about. But he gets it. He totally gets it. And because he gets it, he's able to create. I mean, it's weird. He has this kind of like – he has this kind of like Sartrean existentialist viewpoint in the world in the sense that he's always creating himself, always. And um, he knows that what makes a man is simply the summation of his actions. He, he understands this kind of, this kind of existentialist formula, existence precedes essence. He, he gets that. And again, he, he wouldn't even know what I'm talking about. He would have no idea what's, what's Brian even talking about. But he does it. He lives it. He, 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 intuitively, he intuitively grasps um, how he can operate 
in this in in the digital landscape, I guess, for lack of a better word. And he got it before anybody. He understood it before exactly. anybody. Exactly. I could see it, you know, as an entertainer uh, and, and watching him. I'm, who is this guy? I mean, I'm talking decades ago. It's like, what, 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 I mean, this is guy's in real estate and he's on Johnny Carson. He's on David Letterman. And, you know, and, 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 and everybody talked. He, he, he knew exactly what to use um, as his, his, his symbol. It was his red hair and it have Johnny Carson talking about the fact that the Hubble uh, space station, the first thing they picked up was Donald Trump. I mean, he's in opening monologues. I mean, he just, and when you look back at some of his earlier interviews, he had this vision that, yeah, he was, he was, he was posturing himself to someday be president of the United States, and he made it happen. And, and, and the other thing about Donald Trump, too, the other thing about Donald Trump that I think is important to recognize is that if there's a feature of Donald Trump's personality that could reflect um, the day-to-day experience of, 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 of Americans today, I would undoubtedly use the word com- competitiveness. Exactly. His, I mean, this man is so ruthless. I mean, this man is so all or nothing. His entire life logic is like all or nothing. And this, and the thing that kind of irks me a little bit is that this is always pointed out by liberals, his transactional nature, his uh, kind of, this kind of uber narcissistic selfishness that he displays. But again, what is more transactional than Silicon? I mean, Silicon Valley, the entire business model is transactional. It's reducing human life into zeros and ones, into computational binaries. And of course, a place like Silicon Valley is, quote unquote, like the liberal standard of contemporary American life. So this transactional nature of Donald Trump, this kind of... uh, this, this ultra competitiveness where life is reduced to capitalist productivity and, and um, economic data. I mean, this is not, I mean, yes, it's particularly obscene and vulgar with Trump. It's particularly crass, but this kind of, this kind of social logic of reducing life to, um, to what Mark Fisher, the, the, the late British writer called capitalist. I mean, this is everywhere. Liberals concern, you know, just that I, I know we're, we're coming here to the end, but I just wanted to say one last thing before we, before we um, button up this interview. I just read an article in Atlantic Magazine um, yesterday, and it's really, to me, it is probably the best article I've read in the past year that describes the crisis of America better than anything else. And it's unique because the article isn't really even about something that you would consider being having the potential to tell a story about our whole society. But to me, it was like, I read this article and I was floored, but the, the article was about the, um, the, this kind of psychotic competitiveness of high school athletes in Fairfield County, Connecticut, which is like Westport Greenwich. You know, it's, it's, it's one of the richest counties in America. And the article talked about, the, the high school kids and their parents in competing for these niche sports. Like, you know, cause down, down in Fairfield County, well, yeah, of course they have basketball and football and baseball like all places in America, but they also have this kind of unique uh, sporting network of like squash and water polo and lacrosse sports that, you know, you're not going to really find in uh, rural Montana or Alabama, you know, that's like these niche sports. So the article focused particularly on these kind of, 
uber competitive niche sports, lacrosse, squash, water polo. There was a couple of, I forget, uh, fencing was another one. And I read that article, man. I'm telling you right now, it was the scariest. I mean, it was yep. describing psychosis. Yep. It was describing psychosis. Yeah. It was describing an environment of rearing children that was, yes. was so disturbing yes. and unhealthy and yes. dangerous. But what, yes. when I read it, though, it's like, well, this is just this is a microcosm of America right now. And, you know, they were, they were interviewing a couple of the mothers, and it was so interesting how, like, schizophrenic the mothers were because they were like, this is so bad. Like, one of the mothers in particular, they, they kind of started with her and then ended with her. And it was like in the beginning of the article, the mother was saying how bad it was and her daughters are becoming depressed and all, and all these horrible um, psychological symptoms were emerging from their daughter's participation in this kind of environment. And then at the end – you know, she had hired like two new private. Co- I mean, she couldn't escape. Like, like the mother, she knew it was bad. She knew it was wrong, but she couldn't get out of it because she yep. was trapped into this kind of like Stepford, Stepford wives, uh, kind of like yep. keeping up with the Joneses type of um, environment that she just couldn't make an exit from. And when I read that article, I was just like genuinely, in a way that I haven't been in a long time, like horrified like truly, truly horrified that not only children and, you know, teenagers have to be subjected to this, but in a way this was like, was just showing me like, this is the way, this kind of ultra competitiveness, this kind of ruthless utilitarianism, this is like the, the de facto state of America. It, it's just yeah. everywhere. It's just, it's just dominating, not just traditional economic categories like housing and productivity and you know competition between businesses but it's like it is like between neighbors now it is like between siblings it is between teammates between friends between lovers it is it is everywhere and this to me this is the last thing i want to say here before we before we end but this is what has to be addressed this this psychotic this 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 psychotic competition that has been inscribed into the intersubjective relational field of American society by the forces of capitalism, by the forces of neoliberal technologies, by the forces of the media, by the forces of the political apparatus that sustains and promotes and nurtures these, these destructive tendencies to incubate within society. I mean, this is what we have to look at because this isn't a Democrat. I mean, people will say, ah, that's a right-wing thing. And again, I would agree with that sense that free market capitalism and this kind of uh, explosive capitalist um, development is traditionally associated with the right wing. But this is, to me, this is beyond political categories now. It's an existential threat. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a threat to humanity. It's a threat to children. It's a threat to the ecology. It's a threat to, to the human race. It's a threat to planet Earth. And this is what has to be addressed. And we have to stop focusing on the fact that Donald Trump writes mean tweets. That's it. <laughs> I, want to, I want to give you a standing ovation. If I could, I would. Uh, exactly what I would have, you know, you, you, we took it full circle. And, and this is, you know, we, we have to look at everything as layered. But this is at the root. We have to look at the roots. And this is, you know, you mentioned it in our last uh, uh, discussion. 
the fact that 25% of teenage children are seriously considering suicide. And it is, just isn't because of the uncertainty of COVID or anything else. It's because of this, just exactly what you described, the pressure. And what they call, these are trophy children now. You know, my kid went here, my kid does this. Well, that's, kid, that's exactly, I mean, that's one of the things, too, that when I was reading this article, it's like, these kids and the parents, they weren't even, they were not playing these sports to play these sports. They weren't playing these sports to have fun. They, they certainly weren't playing them to be close to their teammates because they were all, they all, one of the things you got from the article is that they all hated each other because they were all trying to fight for the same spot. But they're doing it simply to remain alive. And, and when yes. I say alive, not, not so much their body, but their ego. They're yes. trying to, like, this was the only way possible for them to remain, in their eyes, human, I guess, for lack of a better word, to remain a proper subject. And that was the most tragic part of it, because what they're doing is precisely the thing that's going to take away their humanity. It's precisely, the, it's precisely what's going to destroy their humanity. So that's, that, was not, that was very, very, it was, it, it was, it was a, an earth-shattering article to read it, even though I knew it all. You know, I, nothing surprised me, really. But it was, it was just, it was very, very, very. Well, you know, uh, it's like it's, it's in our heads, but when we see articulated, we can hold it in our hands. Or, yeah, yeah. You know, see it between, and, you and go, and also, oh, one of the things that I liked about it was that, it, you know, I tend to write in a more philosophical kind of um, style, I guess, where, where this was just straight-up journalism. The, the woman didn't give any um, – there was nothing but, profound about what the writer was saying. Like there, she offered no right. theoretical insights or – anthropological or sociological insights into it. it. It was just a very, very well-researched and well-presented journalistic account of a, of a very unique niche culture in upper-class uh, contemporary Fairfield County, Connecticut. And, and again, it's symptomatic of the underlying malaise. And, uh, you know, it would be Harvard, in Harvard Business School, they would have called it a, a case study uh, for what is really going on. We are over time. I can't, I am so pleased with this one. I hope you are. This was just a brilliant, uh, Brian, to, to listen to your level of articulation, for your insights, your sense of history, your philosophical uh, foundations. I mean, this is so refreshing compared to everything else we see going on today. If only America could understand that this is the paragon. This is the quintessence of where we want to go. We want to have a society that can articulate like this, see things, analyze things, and not be fooled by, by all of the sensationalism, by all of the hate, by all of the emotions. You know, we might then have, have some hope for this country and for the world. So thank you so much. I don't know if you have any parting words. Nope. Thank you for having me, Tom. It's always great talking to you, my friend. Great. Thank you, Brian. Brian Culkin. Okay. And um, please... Please check them out on uh, the internet and the, the all of the credits that I gave before. It was a great, great interview. Thank you, Brian. All right, Tom. Bye. Take care.